Hello, Agnes. Hi, Robin. Hi, Rory. Hi. We have a guest today. Our guest is? Uh, I'm Rory. I blog at the Violet Hour, and we, I think, are going to talk about uh, edgelords and edgelord energy. Um, can I start with a can I start with a question? Uh, so um, um, so a couple of days ago, Robin, I emailed you this paper about truth bounties. Um, uh, it would be like you could say something on the internet and then you could put like, I'll pay a thousand dollars if I'm proved wrong. And then uh, you know, at like people are then incentivized to prove me wrong, but more significantly, people are people are going to be more likely to believe me because I was willing to put that out there. And you, you know, you retweeted it or tweeted it. I hadn't tweeted it. You tweeted it, and then you're like, um, "Yeah, this would be a good solution to fake news if readers actually cared, right?" And that's so what that, I said, I think that's what you said. Yes, Robin. Okay, sorry, yeah. I thought you were talking to Rory. No, I was talking to you, Robin. Okay. Um, and so, like, sometimes, um, you know, you're in kind of um, policy proposal mode uh, where, like, you propose things like prediction markets and vouchers and et cetera. Um, and then at other times, you seem to be in, like, I don't know what the right word to call it is, cynicism mode or something, where you're just, like, Nobody actually cares about the truth. Um, and like, how do you see those two things as fitting together? Uh, I see a, a space of possible institutions, a space of possible things we could do. And then I see particular proposals to consider. And some proposals more make idealistic assumptions about the world in order for them to work. And if those assumptions are unrealistic, then those are less attractive proposals. <laughs> that is, we should design proposals to work in the actual world, even if it's not the world we wish we had, and even if we could reasonably complain about the world we're in, and it should have been the other world that we had something else designed for. So, so this, you know, if you think people should care about the truth, then you can be irate that they don't, and then be irate that the solution isn't sufficient. But once you're done being irate, if you want to still solve the problem, you have to think of some other way to uh, deal with it because uh, that's based on a excessively idealistic assumption that you can either find a way to make that assumption true or find a way to work around it. And, and so like, you know, like your voucher's proposal is like a way to deal better with crime, right? What, what would you say is like the main goal of that proposal? So I don't know if we've already seen these things, but the main goal of the vouchers proposal would be to actually be more cost-effective in reducing crime. That okay. is, you know, we we crime is costly and it's costly to prevent crime. So there's a trade-off between allowing crime and preventing it. And you want to be able to do the most preventing while spending the least on doing so. And so, like, what if what if people just say to you, well, that's really idealistic. Like nobody actually cares about that. People don't want to be cost-effective in preventing crime. Well, I would want to hear more details about their evidence for that claim. I mean, it's possible, but merely claiming it would be sufficient. And I would be happy to elaborate on the claim about the news proposal. Um, although I'm not sure 
how we're, we want to connect this back soon to Rory's discussion. Yeah. So like, but your thought is, well, um, you know, it's not obvious whether people care about cost effectiveness in the reduction of crime. um, But it is obvious that people care about fake news. Uh, Sorry, but it, it's obvious. The first one's obvious and the second one isn't. I have more data on the other one. So I've been working on promoting prediction markets for a long time. And in that process, learning a lot about people's preferences regarding the truth, because a prediction market is an excellent mechanism for getting at truth. And I've realized that it's not enough merely to appeal to the fact that it produces truth. That's not a sufficient motivation in most cases. But there are other things people care about, and truth can be instrumental in getting those other things. So the challenge is to focus people's attention on the other things they want, and then seeing if one can convince them that this particular truth will get them the other things. So, for example, um, I was told an anecdote, I believe, but I didn't directly verify that a major Washington-based media outlet had a project where they went and studied pundits for their accuracy. That is, they uh, you know, they looked at what pundits have said, tried to code them as something they could verify, you know, tried to verify it was true or not, and tried to create an accuracy record for these pundits. And apparently some review board looked at this um, project and said, uh, well, look, um, our most popular pundits they're not actually the most accurate ones here. And if we release release this information, what we're going to do is just decrease people's interest in reading pundits in general. And that's against our interest as a media outlet. So they killed the project. So that's a claim that um, in that context, they weren't especially interested in accuracy. So for example, if they tried to push their most popular pundits to back their claims with these bonds, truth bonds, they would probably back off and say, I'll go work for somebody else because you're asking me to do a lot here. And you know, even if you push that, the readers would find out that the most popular pundits weren't willing to put very big truth bonds on their claims. And that would make them discouraged by seeing those pundits and not being interested in reading them as much. And then the demand for media would go down. And that would be against the interest of the media outlets considering these policies. Okay. So let's take a step back and uh, you know, this idea that like pe- people, um, people want to think of themselves as caring about the truth, right? That is, that's important to our self-conception. Um, I think that's just going to be true for everyone. Uh, everyone wants to think of themselves as caring about the truth. Um, and, um, you come along and you say, yeah, but people don't care about the truth. Um, and so maybe Rory, can you tell us a little bit about like why, uh, why I thought you captured very well in your essay um, why someone like me might find this disturbing and then maybe also talk a little bit about why someone like you um, sees a kind of promise in it. Um, so I'm not sure my essay actually did all that much to say or help explain why someone like uh, you might be disturbed by this proposal or this like particular proposal. Um, so take a step back. So I wrote this essay called uh, Therapy for Edgelords because I was confused by some of Agnes's previously slightly um, playful but insulting remarks to Robin in his like general account of sick. Um, And there I took Agnes to be saying 
something like you're breaking down people's self-conception and not offering them anything in return. Um, that's the cost. You need to like make it on this cost. Um, so if we're to connect it here, I guess Agnes's objection would be something like, look, Robin, you're saying all of this stuff um, to people such like, you know, you don't care about the truth as much as you think you do. And if you find uh, Robin in general um, to be picking apart of people's self-conceptions in an objectionable way, um, then you're probably going to find uh, Robin's remarks here also objectionable. Um, so that's the pitch. I'm not sure why this is like a, an especially concerning case or an especially kind of like... Um, it's like not. Policy. Okay, okay, cool, cool. Um, well, I, I have a, I would like to pursue elaborating what is this concept of giving people a self-conception or letting them keep a self-conception uh, and how it plays out in just some much more mundane examples. So, for example, uh, we're at an event, uh, we're leaving the event, there's a coat place, and you are taking my coat. And I say, excuse me, uh, but that's my coat. You'll see my name inside and ask them for my coat. Now, do I need to give them a self-conception of how they could have possibly taken the wrong coat? Because this might, they might have seen themselves as the sort of person who doesn't take the wrong coat. And I might be disturbing that by asking for my coat. Or another example, uh, you know, you're a colleague and I ask you for a date and you say no. Now, I might have thought I was the sort of person you would say yes to. How much responsibility do you have to you know, help me see that I'm the wrong person, that I'm not the sort of person you should say yes to, uh, as opposed to just saying no. Uh, I mean, you, you know, we can elaborate more examples, you know, say, uh, you know, you you publish a math proof and I show you the mistake on page three. How much do I need to help you have a self-conception of the sort of person who could have made a mistake on page three because you probably don't think you made a mistake. So, I mean, these are just, you know, we clearly we can multiply these examples, but it seems to me if, in more ordinary personal interactions, we often don't hold the standard that in order to correct someone or inform something of something that they might not want to know, that we need to, you know, go out of our way to give them a way to reconstruct their self. Yeah. So I agree that the coat example is unobjectionable. And so my initial first pass for why that seems so clearly unobjectionable is that, uh, look, firstly, most people don't have a conception of themselves as always taking the right coat and they don't hold that as like a strong part of their self-identity. Um, and also like, even if there is a kind of minor cost involved, um, does this benefit to you, which is getting your coat. But it might be more objectionable if, for example, we imagine this person, um, let's imagine they're severely schizophrenic um, and they become really hurt by kind of um, anything that goes against their current world model and any kind of like minor revisions to their felt self-consistent world model within which they're operating will be really, really distressing to them. Uh, now, you like, might still want your coat, um, but I do think in this case, you owe someone um, like a larger duty to kind of say it in a polite way um, because in some sense, this person is more fragile. And to some degree, we all have parts of our self-identity that are a little fragile. 
And I am at least sympathetic to the idea that we owe people something when we talk about these topics. Yeah, can I modify the code example so that we get something in between? <laughs> Not quite mm-hmm. all the way up to schizophrenia, but like, so I, this has happened to me, right? Where somebody takes the wrong of something and, or somebody's in this, in your seat on the plane or something. And I guess I think that um, pretty often the way the interaction goes is that the couple, in fact, does work through what happened. Like, oh, my coat looks just like yours. Or, oh, both of our tickets are the same seat. Or, oh, I thought it said 53A, but it says 50. And like, if you were just very brusque about it and you were insistent, like, it says my seat, I'm not talking to you any further. Like, this is my seat, get out of my seat. Um, That would, in fact, be rude. That is, it is, in some sense, at least there's a convention that in that situation, you're open to the conversation. Um, And the goal of that conversation is kind of, restoring understanding of what went wrong here. Being open is different than initiated and even constructing it, right? Do I really need to find out why they're in my seat before I can tell them they're in my seat and have a story ready for them? Or can I just be open to their discussion? Well, I I think being open isn't like, uh, it's neither of those things that it's neither like, look, it's on you if you want to do it. That's not that's not what I mean by open. What I mean by open is kind of like you are initiating those proceedings to the same degree that they, so, you know, you too want to know what went wrong here or something like that. Um, and uh, you're in that sense, an equal I, participant. I think it would actually be rude to say you're in my seat. How could you have made such a mistake? I think that would be adding insult to injury. Um, right. No. So like, I think that would sound like an accusation. Right. Um, so, but, but, um, um, uh, but I think that, um, there's ways of saying you're in my seat, um, where it's sort of like, um, where you're sort of like saying you're, you're implying like, look, something has gone wrong here. And like the two of us will figure it out by contrast with you're in my seat, get out of my seat. Um, where in some people don't want to have a discussion about why they made the mistake and you want to give them that option. You, you want to let them, if they want to discuss why they made the mistake, you should let them. But if they don't want to discuss it, you should also let them. uh, Right. And, and I mean, this gets to like the Rory's point about, okay, maybe it's just such a trivial part of their self-conception that they just want to move on or something. And so the degree to which you want to be open to having the conversation is probably going to be a function of the degree to which it's part of their self-conception. My thought would just even get taking the wrong code is a little bit part of people's self-conception, just a very tiny bit. So okay, but that's pick something bigger. Like I'm auditioning for a movie and you reject me, right? It's a big part of my conception. I really wanted this part. And you say no. I mean, how much do you have to explain why you said no, as opposed to say, no, we didn't give you the part? I mean, I don't know what the conventions are with turning people down for parts for movies. Convention is they don't say any much of anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe we do just have a... Um, like. We just, we know that is going to hurt. It probably does hurt people's feelings, right? And we're just sort of okay with it. But that's not to say that there's no cost. That is, the question is whether there's a cost. Well, the question is, what size costs are we expecting people to bear? That's the question. So, 
mean, the analog here is an academic writes an academic book about a topic about humans. And you as a human hear about this book and you say, hey, why didn't you have a letter specifically to me explaining to me how I can see my life in the light of your abstract book about humans? Like, is that a reasonable thing to ask of an author of a book? I mean, that's the analog we're discussing here, right? No, I don't think that's right. That is that that wasn't my demand. My my demand wasn't that you have a letter specifically to me. Um, uh, My demand was something like you help the reader reconstitute themselves. And I don't think that has to happen at a at a one on one personal level. What if there isn't a general answer? There isn't a general answer to why you got rejected for the part in the movie. Uh, An answer would have to be specific to you. There is no general letter we could give all rejectees to a movie part to to help them see it. Mm. Right. Well, that would be, I mean, that would be an interesting, so I wonder what Rory thinks about this. Like, Rory, do you think, um, like, in effect, if the thing I were asking for were impossible, then that would be a reason not to do it. And, And then the question would just be, is the cost so great that, you know, the activity is still worthwhile? And I probably would acknowledge that the answer to that is yes. Sorry, no, that we should, you should still write the book, but yeah. Sure. Okay. So I think if I heard your initial question rightly, it was something like, um, if something is impossible, is that a reason for me um, not to do it? Um, And I don't know if there's a general answer to that question it's going to depend like pretty heavily on like what um you think the corresponding benefits are and i think one thing that i felt so during this mini discussion here robin was that i was unclear on whether you acknowledged that there was a genuine cost to the way you presented signaling and you were just saying gosh like it is a cost how unfortunate um but i can't do anything about it and there's some good that's uh, presented by my book. Uh, Is that your view? Or are you also doubtful over whether there's a cost at all? I'm happy to acknowledge a cost. It's less clear whether it's a net cost. Yeah. That is, telling people true things has multiple consequences for them, some of which are unpleasant feelings, Mm -hmm others of which can be learning in the long run or growth or an opportunity to, you know, to get a warning, something you should be looking at and figuring out. Uh, yeah, so it's less yeah. clear whether there's a net harm, uh, but I certainly agree that telling somebody, I mean, telling the person that their math paper has a failure on page three of the proof is, I mean, they're not going to like that right there. There's going to be this emotional poor reaction, but we might say, you know, it's still all things considered good to tell them about the mistake in the proof. And even them personally. Sure. So, okay. So that's helpful for further questions. So one thing I was thinking when you gave this example of somebody, you know, being rejected for a movie and you said something like, there might not just be any general thing we can say um, as to why this applicant uh, was rejected or why a wide class of applicants were rejected. Um, But I'm not sure that's quite... Right. So I think people would find it um, less insulting, right? Even if they just receive some rote email, like um, many super talented people apply for roles of this type. Um, so, yeah, if you receive rejection, please be assured that like this doesn't necessarily mean anything about uh, the fact that you can't be a talented actor in the future. 
or something like that. Um, and this is very general in some ways, like people who complain that it's trite, but it is true. And I think would do something to soften the blow, um, which makes me, given that this was your example, skeptical, skeptical about the idea that there's nothing very general you could say um, in the signaling case. Well, I mean, obviously there's general things you can say, but that just aren't very useful, but they're, I mean, most rejection letters do come with some general platitudes like that. And most people, after they've seen the first three such letters, they aren't really learning anything more from the next dozen. Uh, but we all, it's like wearing a suit to an interview. We all consider it polite to do that, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to give a, I mean, and they, if they reject you for a part, they will just say, sorry, you weren't right for the part or, you know, something like that. Uh, but I mean, the question is, is that enough? Uh, I mean, I could just have a quick general platitude at the beginning of my book about how, gee, I'm sorry, uh, this might, you know, deflate you and, uh, we don't really mean it personally and uh, go on from there. But I, in fact, I think we have some language like that. The question is whether that's sufficient. I, I, I want to go back to this idea of it's being like, um, uh, you know, whether it's a net cost. And I guess, um, like, you know, you say that the people that your book is in some sense oriented towards our policymakers who might be able to put this knowledge to use and use less see individuals as able to put it to use. Is that correct? We identify a number of communities that might find value in it. And we describe which ones we think, you know, we felt the book was more motivated for writing, but we're somewhat, I guess, libertarian in the sense of if we warn you about the book and then you you want to read it then we're not going to want to stop you so we're not going to deny that people might get value and let them make that choice but mm. um when we you know try to justify the book we we say you know policymakers would be one of the biggest categories we might point to as a justification we can say at least this looks like and social scientists, uh, you know, rationale. But we also say maybe managers and salespeople and nerds and some other groups we can maybe identify. But obviously, we sell the book to everybody. And, you know, as long as everybody can get the proper warning about how it might not be good for them, uh, let them make the choice. I guess I I am I'm skeptical about that warning, like whether like suppose that you thought you couldn't warn people. Suppose you thought the warning was impossible. Like you could put words in that sounded like warning words, but it would be a little bit like the words of they would be about as useful as the words that say all the applicants were talented. Right? Um, the warning words are going to wash right over people. Um, uh, that people don't respond differentially to warning words of that kind. Um, uh, would you feel very differently about the book, like, and about the legitimacy of putting it forward? I might think um, I would let people audition for my movie, and knowing that I will reject most of them, and most of them will be hurt a bit by being rejected, but they made the choice to audition, and right. I might think. I want to let them make that choice. Or even, you know, you might want to let somebody ask you for a date and 
knowing that you might say no. And it's okay if you say no. Uh, you wouldn't want to sort of put up a sign that says nobody ever asked me because I might say no. So I wonder, Rory, whether you think that like somehow does at the very bottom of this, does there lie a disagreement about whether people's pains are their own problem or other people's problems? Um, so I was thinking as you were talking about how to diagnose the disagreement and that wasn't the thing that came to my mind. So when I was listening to you, Agnes, I got the sense that you thought um, the cost was graver than Robin seems to think. And to be honest, I think, I think, and that's why I think you're asking these questions um, about, well, look, suppose it were impossible, right? Um, to ever assuage anyone from uh, the the pain, let's say, that they would get from readings, reading Robin's book, would that be enough? Um, and I'm sympathetic to the idea that it can feel a bit maybe wounding reading the book, but I guess my sense is that the book doesn't like come with a very grave cost. Um, and I think there are, as I think you agree, some, some benefits to that kind of research. Um, Hence why I was not so concerned with the whether, you know, what to do um, if there were no way of preventing people from. You know. So it seems to me your, your essay and Agnes's comments initially, I guess you're responding to, are, are focused less on sort of the overall cost mm -hmm. than they are on sort of an incremental cost of going from some overall negative sign to some sort of internal explanation or resolution of it. Uh, that is, uh, you know, in the case of being rejected for the movie, mm -hmm. uh, you you get this overall negative sign of being rejected, and then you might try to understand why you were rejected. And you might say, I was too nervous, or, what you know, this part was, you know, wanting somebody who's a little more somber, I'm not somber, right? You might try to think it through to come to a personal understanding of why, or why I took the code, I guess I was not paying attention, I was too distracted in a conversation. I was sad about something, right? So there's all these ways that we might well reasonably take some negative news and try to work with it to try to help us understand it and help us integrate it into our framing. And the question is, how appropriate is it or to, to put on that responsibility on the person who gives you the bad news to help you work through how to understand it? So that seems to me a different issue, that it's not just about the overall giving you bad news. That would be about just how costly will it be for you to work through it? I mean, how bad will it be after you work through it? It'll be some bad. But the, the proposal here was, it's all right to tell you the bad news as long as I help you work through it. And that could end up still being pretty bad harm. You still might, once you've worked through it, you might still might not like it at all. So this doesn't seem a primarily harm-based analysis. It's not about how bad is it for you to hear this and work it through? The claim was the person telling you the bad news needs to help you work it through so that you figure out, you know, better way of understanding why it happened. And then it's okay. That seemed to be the claim. But so so I, I think that that's not quite what I meant to say, though. I see that might be what I actually did say. Um, 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 I think that, like, 
the thing that I encounter repeatedly with your book, which I read now, you know, a few years ago, right? And I have reread and I recently heard you present it, um, is just that um, I my mind goes like, you know, here's your arguments and then it wants to take the next step. Like it wants to be like, okay, so, and then it just can't. Like, I feel like there is no next step from here. I feel like th- th- this leads you nowhere. And um, I think that many people can make contributions, you know, that might be dispiriting, but that you could do something with. Um, and it wouldn't be their job to tell you how to do it, like if you could do it on your own or something. But it somehow feels to me like with this book in particular, I just don't know where to go next with it. I don't even know what kinds of policies you would, if you were a policymaker, mm. what this would motivate you to do. Like it, 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 and and so that's the bit that bothers me. It's like that there's nowhere to go with it. I mean, that sounds to me a lot like the person who asked for for a date, saying how how could I have asked different and gotten a different answer, and there just may not be such a answer that you could give them about how they could have done it different. Uh, that doesn't mean they aren't giving you useful information by selling, telling you no or that it wasn't appropriate for you to tell you no. So I do think there are many ways to integrate my book into how you live your life and see the world. And I've done that. And I know other people have done that. But maybe it's just not the kind of answer you wanted. You wanted to know, how could I have asked you on a date such that you would have said yes? And I'm not telling you that. I mean, if like, you know, if um, um, if learning that you're not like learning that you're not interested in me is necessarily practical information, because now I can go and ask somebody else. Right. Um, So I think just turning me down is giving me useful information. Um, And what I'm not as much seeing is how the information in your book is useful information. That is like, what would I, what would I do otherwise? Like I've actually tried to think about how would I live my, how do I live my life differently now that I've read this book and I get, I I have no sense of it. I have no sense, even that I should pursue less healthcare than I did before, because what if I really should be signaling how much I care about myself and my associates to them? Maybe that's super important and I got to keep doing that. Um, uh, so, so I, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it is the, the, the thing that makes it feel like trolling to me is just the, um, the, the not knowing what the next step is supposed to be. So Agnes, do you think the book undermines all possible value claims you might form. So here's one example of like how I might think you would use Robin's book to do something in your interpersonal life. So Robin is like, conversation is primarily um, about signaling, you know, your ability to use all sorts of fun and fancy tools. Um, And you might independently have this value where you're like, no, I want to communicate information or I want to engage with people or emotionally understand them. And I mean, I read Robin's book and I've like, sometimes I've been in a conversation with someone that's like, oh yeah, that's the thing I was doing. You know, I was not um, serving my broader set of ends. I was doing something that looks a bit like signaling. Um, And 
I don't see what your objection is to me reasoning in that way. There's a line from your blog post. Let me read it. Yeah. Um, uh, so you say, you may leave, lead people deeply astray without any firm ground from which to navigate their resulting sense of feeling lost. You may leave people with nothing to grasp onto, for they may worry that any attempt to gain traction on their motivations would themselves be a form of signaling. Okay. So like, um, you know, that, that example where you interrupt yourself mm-hmm. and you say, um, oh, wait a minute. Um, I I was just signaling the fact that I know French instead of, you know, inquisitively conducting this conversation or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, um, I mean, you could take that at face value or you could say, ah, I'm like, here I am trying to signal to myself that I'm better than other people and that I conduct conversations in this information way, even though I know that like, you know, in fact, I am just like everybody else, right? So I, I guess I think it works so long as you don't apply it too much or something like that, and you don't apply it too consistently and frequently. But Isn't that all skepticism? I mean, you know, as, as a professional philosopher, you know, that philosophers often take students and they show them that they can't draw any inferences unless they make some assumptions. If there's an evil demon, they could be fooling them about everything. And then they have no firm place to stand in order to prove that they know anything. And that's something you do to students. And isn't that a similar kind of thing you're complaining about here? The most famous skeptical text in the world is Descartes' Meditations. And he does start by saying, wait a minute, what if everything's wrong? What if there's an evil demon? Then he's like, we better now reestablish all the foundations and show and give people a grounding to like, set them back up in reality. Otherwise, the thing, this thing would be super destructive and horrible. Um, and I, I guess I think that, um, so like, you know, um, now you might just be a skeptic, right? Um, that is, you might think, I mean, Descartes isn't one, right? But you might think it's impossible to know anything. Um, and uh, and then you might, you know, try to put that argument before people and and then and then someone like me might come along and say, well, that's very destructive. Um, and I, I, I guess I care about the details of the skepticism uh, and how how the conversation is supposed to go. But um, but like, I don't think it's crazy for somebody who has skeptical impulses to also have the thought. I am beholden to people for reestablishing the foundations if I can in the way that Descartes did. If for medicine, I tell you what you want is mainly is to reassure people that you care about them and let them show they care about you. This is a new foundation. You just don't like it. It's a completely coherent, logical foundation. It's something you can embrace. You can see directly. You can apply it to your personal life. You just don't like it. That's your complaint. Not that it's incoherent or it won't let you see things. No, it's my sense is that you don't like it. That is that like, um, um, it's like if if you if you said that's the foundation, and then you're like, now let's double down on medicine so that we can do more showing that we care, right? But you want us to cut medicine, like cut it in half. So- well, why can't that be a coherent position? Why can't that be the conclusion of the analysis? Why reject that? It seems like you're rejecting. You just want to reject particular conclusions, not that you're saying I'm throwing you in a skeptical lane where there's no possible conclusions to draw. You just don't like my conclusion. I don't think that's right. So like my initial read on uh, Agnes's response to you and uh, her initial response to me is that 
it feels like uh, she takes your book maybe more seriously than anyone I've ever encountered. Um, so the thing that allowed me to, um, from my perspective, notice that I was engaging in signaling conversation and then do something else is that I um, didn't take your book that seriously. I do have some sense when I reflect, I'm like, no, I like, feel confident that this is what I'm doing for this particular reason. Um, and I found your book helpful on an individual level to the extent that it created a twinge in me, but helped me look inside myself and see, oh yeah, I'm doing something that's a bit signally. And I think the thing that Agnes is saying is maybe something like, um, the move that I just stated is not allowed within your framework because it's meant to apply to everything. And that's why I think she's saying that it's incoherent because she's saying, look, I'm the only one who's taking your book really, really, really seriously. Um, and I'm like pushed to its limit. There's nothing you can say. But I don't push it to the limit. That is, I explicitly say, look, all human behavior has many relevant motivations. When I talk about the, a hidden motive, it's the the most the strongest motive that you're not admitting compared to the other motives you like to admit. It's not the only motivation. Doesn't explain everything, uh, but it's important to point out that you're not admitting that that there's this big motivation there. So it applies to a lot of things, not to everything, and that therefore means when you explain your behavior, you won't be using it only to explain all your behavior. That would be not right. I guess you know, um, in order to be motivated. Um, like to move forward in doing anything you have to i think think you have the main reason for doing what you're doing in view i think that's almost just the definition of what it is to be motivated at least to be self-aware in each case but it doesn't have to be the same in each case right um and um um maybe there's just a kind of problem like if that's what motivation is, if motivation um, is a kind of self-awareness of includes or involves a kind of self-awareness about the goal, then maybe you're just saying that um, like all motivation is illusory in a certain way because we can't have awareness and not just we can't have 100% awareness, right? But that we're like basically mostly wrong. That is the thing that we think is the is the biggest motive that's most salient to us isn't. Well, you were mostly wrong. But after you hear me and believe me, you're no longer mostly wrong because now you can know. So this was Rory's point, I think. I think the, I think the thing is that that's not true. Like that is that um, it, it's just that we find new ways of like covering it up and like putting forward a new version that looks safe, but isn't safe. Right. Like Rory can be like, oh, now I know. And now I can avoid it. Now I'll make sure not to mention that I know French or something. But like, but, that, but that's not like he's, he's, he's gotten around that he, you know, signaling. Um, it's just, he found a new way to signal. Signaling is an emotive you can just directly embrace. It's, it's coherent. You can understand it. You, you can see the mechanisms and the micro parts of it. You can understand how it applies to your world. And you can just say, yes, this is substantially what I want. I will do this for that reason. Yeah. So like, I think that 
you know, when, when you say like, when I say like what I wanted this book to be, um, uh, like in some way, if there had been a part of this book where you're just like signaling is really great. Let me tell you why. So like human beings are awesome because we do this great thing and we're not aware that we're doing it, but we should all become more aware and then we can like do it better. I actually think there's a case to be made that that's just true. And okay, just, but, we'll but I can have a motive and know what it is without saying it's great. I mean, so people know they have many motives that they are not too proud of, right? And they don't want to say they're great, but they still often admit, yeah, this is my motive, even if it's not so great. And that's more the tone we're taking here. Okay. I want to actually want us to take a like, step back because I feel like um, I want us to take a step back more broadly to the edgelord issue, like not necessarily just particularly in this book or sure. particular you, right? Um, and um, where like, you know, I, like I, I guess I want to hear Rory say something about what's valuable about having edgelords in our intellectual ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to defend this case, um, I think you have to have some sympathy for the idea um, that sometimes there's a real active good in breaking down people's self-conceptions. And you could give really morally laden historical examples, but one that's just about come to mind um, references this earlier example where um, you... Somebody takes your coat unknowingly. Um, Now, if I imagine uh, this person behaving really indignantly at the thought that they made a mistake, um, I can really sympathize with this um, urge to kind of break down their current self-conception and maybe even do it in a way that's more along the pathway of the truthful troll. And why? I think it's because... For the reason I I, ju- I just don't like it. Um, I don't think it's good for the world to have for people to have self conceptions where they're like, well, I can never be wrong, and whatever I think is right is right, and whatever I do is great. Um, and I think to the extent I like what I see as edgelord energy, I think it might stem from the fact that I think people are already a bit too much along along this direction. They need, you know, a few Hansonians to to knock them down a bit. That's very interesting. Okay. I actually didn't quite get that from your piece. So and I, I want to just restate it and then see what see what Robin thinks about it. So like this that is like um you know there's just people who are inflated like too self-inflated with ego and re- ready to become indignant. And those people need to be taught a lesson. Uh, and, uh, so it's good if they feel a little bit of pain, um, um, because they needed to be taken down a peg. Uh, and the value of these edgelords is that they target those people and take them down a peg. Robin, your response. I might rephrase it in terms of saying the world often has self-reinforcing arrogance 
That is, there's lies out there that are protected and reinforced by indignation and uh, sort of the sense that, that people couldn't possibly be wrong about that. And if we're ever going to figure out the truth, then, yeah, they need to be slapped a bit uh, to to feel the pain of being visibly wrong when they are. And maybe they can then learn to uh, be a little more cautious about the other lies. Yeah, so, like, I guess maybe this is helpful for me in terms of um, the question, um, is teaching someone a lesson or taking them down a peg um, compatible with inquiring with them? Like, a phrase you use, Rory, in your essay is you say, I think edgelord energy can motivate you to inquire into why your peers aren't undertaking comparatively trivial costs in order to save the lives of others, at least to their form of the relative costs. Okay. So you say, you're going to inquire into why your peers aren't like, um, your, your, your effective altruist peers aren't undertaking these um, trivial costs to save the lives of others. Now, I can imagine two different ways, like th- that could go like this, like um, you, you're basically want to be like showing people, ha ha, look, you're not... Um, you're not a real effective altruist. Here are these trivial costs you could take and they would like create lots of benefits for other people. Where if that's sort of your goal, that to me doesn't look like an inquiry. I mean, we can say you inquired into it, right? But what it it looks like the end product of that is taking people down a peg, um, which I'm not saying is not, doesn't might not have some value, but it seems to be very different if you wanted to know like, um, you know, why don't we take these costs where the answer wasn't, um, there wasn't a kind of presumed answer of like, because you're not a real effective altruist or because you don't care. Um, But actually there's a real question there. Um, That seems like a different process. And it seems to me that the edgelord, um, I wonder if the edgelord can do the second thing. I wonder if the edgelord is, is reduced to doing the first thing. Um. So what do I think? Okay, so when I said um, inquire into why your peers aren't taking comparatively trivial costs, um, I took this notion of inquiry to be Mm -hmm. primarily like an individual um, sense of inquiry where you look at the like consequences of the stated commitments of other people, like um, of common sense morality. um, And then you drive something that looks surprising um, and this is a kind of inquiry. It's not inquiring with someone, but it is inquiring, let's say, about them and about some large class of people. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so I think you can do that. I think the, and my claim there was something like, there's this thing, edgelord energy, um, and you're more likely to do this kind of investigation if you have edgelord energy. Um, I think someone who's only edgelord and nothing else probably can't do the other thing you're gesturing at, which is really inquire with someone um, and help them see from their own perspective what exactly is going on. Mm. So I, I might say one of the things you can do in a world of people with lots of ideas and opinions is just point out contradictions or point out conflicts. 
And if you can convince people there are contradictions or conflicts, you can be pretty sure that will have consequences and it'll, you know, propagate somehow, but you don't necessarily know exactly how. And then maybe it's not your job to know exactly how. I mean, you might think if you were in a building and you saw a water leak, like, you know, so the, the, the ceiling was getting wet over some hallway, you might think the right thing to do was to go tell somebody about the water leak. And you don't know how they're going to fix that. You don't know if they're going to change the pipe or reroute it or whether they're going to wait to the weekend. But it's not necessarily your job to have to know how they're going to fix it in order to report the problem. Uh, I guess another example might be just in you know a capitalist world, you see a product nobody's offering that it's profitable and you're supposed to go out and offer it and make some money and that'll disrupt the whole world that people will, you know, new product, old products will decay and people will change jobs and, you know, property prices will change. And you're not supposed to need to know how all those consequences will play out in order to, to take the most concrete action you see, which is to take this profit opportunity. So I might say, you know, in the world of ideas, finding a contradiction or conflict at least is a thing to notice and is valuable, especially when it's on something important. And you should just point that out in as clear a way as you can and follow some of the consequences through. But it's not your job to figure most of them out and you shouldn't be asked to do so. I think that, that um, that's a little too, um, that softens the edgelord too much. That is, okay, here's another paragraph that I'm going to read from Roy's essay. The edgelord's behavior relies on their being in some way responsive to their concerns of others, although responsive in a quite specific way. The edgelord is responsive when opportunities to highlight potential cracks in the held self-conception of others while placing less emphasis on aiding their interlocutor in an attempt to construct a coherence. Okay, but the point is that first part, right? It's like, um, you're not just looking out for contradictions, you're looking out for the contradictions that will be in some sense psychologically disruptive because your goal in some way is to create these, like, you know, the large cracks in the self-conceptions, the ones that will really disturb people. Um, and uh, uh, so to sort of make a crack in their arrogance. And uh, and so it's not just like, oh, you're just, you're just doing stuff and being helpful and like, oh, accidentally it happens that like someone got like offended or insulted in some sense your goal is they're being offended or insulted uh in the in the sense that to have your self-conception be broken just is to be offended or insulted in some way right but we might agree i think like you know if the question is should there be edgelords i i think the answer is probably yes i i would agree with that but i would i would add and there should be snowflakes like me who are like you know hypersensitive to the destructive of the edgelords and we're going to come out and say like stop hurting us right you also want those people in your ecosystem right um uh so it like it's not obvious to me that even if we say yeah there should be edgelords there might also be we might also want to say yeah and there should be the people who complain about them too because the edgelord is maybe like going to be in a way less um less attuned to the unintended consequences of um you know, bursting people's self-conceptions. So let's consider the example of the town busybody or even government troublemaker, right? So this person, say they're retired, they don't have many friends, so they wander around town looking for illegally parked cars. They look for ways in which the government's not following its rules, workers who are taking an extra long lunch break, um, you know, et cetera. And maybe they have a 
you know, vendetta against the fire department. And they especially look for the fire department and see when they're breaking the rules. And we might say, you know, and the fire people might say, you know, why, why all over my case? Go, go look, go look for problems in somebody else. Right. You know, but we might say, well, look, it doesn't that much matter what this person's motivation is or what personality type inclines them to this. The key question, is this a legitimate activity? If they find an illegally parked car, do we want to know about that? Should we, you know, is if their motivation is poor, does that mean we shouldn't hear listen to them about illegally parked cars or maybe embezzled government property because they're, you know, not the right sort of a mental state that we want? Um, I find that a hard case. Rory, do you have some immediate reaction to that case? I don't have an immediate reaction. Do you see it as analogous? I I, I guess I think like um, there are versions of that story where I would say um, we should not pay attention to them. And then there are versions of that story where I would say we should. So for instance... Um, you know, suppose they only targeted, like, um, suppose, like, say, 50% of the people in government were in their family somehow, right? Um, But then the other 50% weren't, and they only targeted the 50% they weren't, and they did it to get them out of office so that more of their family members could be elected. And that systematically, as the corruption of those people is exposed, and the other people are also just as corrupt, right? But their corruption is never exposed. And this is what is allowing this family to get a bigger and bigger foothold until it will have control of the whole government. Like, you know, in that case, I might say, like, look, um, um, we actually we actually don't we we want to correct our corruption less by not listening to this guy because um, uh, it's not actually a net positive. So I, I can I can imagine versions of the story where the answer would be no, don't listen to the guy. But I can certainly imagine many versions of it where the answer would be listen to the person. Wouldn't you want to just tell the other family, hey, you know, if you guys are losing, go go search for violations <laughs> but yourself. Like, but like, like, suppose you live in the real world and not the ideal world, and you've done that a lot of times, and they never do it. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, and so this is the situation you're encountering. I mean, like, I'm not saying there aren't, like, I, I, I suppose it's not inconceivable to me that there's a version of the story in which the answer would be don't listen to the crank. I don't think a priori always listen to the crank, even if they're truthful. Can, can I can I slightly change um the like uh slightly change the topic to go to back to go back to we haven't touched on Socrates. You talk about Socrates in here as the kind of healing troll. Um, what's interesting to me about the idea that you see Socrates as the healing troll, which is also how I see him, is that that's not how most people see him. That is, most people really would identify the ways in which I'm like describing, you know, Robin as what they see Socrates is doing. Um, So they would say, wait, aren't you objecting to Socrates? And I think it's because they have a two state, most people have a two stage view of Socratic inquiry where like step one is you have to prove that your interlocutor doesn't know the things that they say they know. So Euthyphro doesn't really know what piety is or Alcibiades doesn't know what justice is. Uh, Lakey's doesn't know what courage is, et cetera, et cetera. And then once you have like a clean slate, 
then you can begin to inquire with them into the nature of justice and piety and courage, right? So they're imagining that Socratic inquiry has these two stages, let's say the destructive stage and the constructive stage. And I almost feel like Robin too is imagining that and he's just doing the destructive stage and the constructive stage can happen later. And my own view about Socratic inquiry is just that Socrates doesn't think these are two stages. That that is, he thinks that they're the same thing, they're the same activity. There's just one activity. Um, and it's inquiry, and inquiry goes by, works by, you know, pointing out that someone has said something false, but that's just what inquiring is. It's not a question, it's just like a statement to hear you guys react to. So I think uh, that fits my understanding um, of Robin too. And in fact, the way, like, at least my initial reading of Robin basically um, had him saying um, that, look, I just, you know, do my thing. I'm good at the destructive stuff. Um, you know, I'm a nerd, whatever. Um, the constructive stuff, you know, leave, leave that leave that to the, the snowflakes. We have, you know, a good epistemic ecosystem here. I can, you know, destruct and, um, and then I'll do a podcast with you and you can, you know, um, construct the, the snowflake vision in my wake. Um, that seems right. I guess one thing I was a bit curious about when you said that um, was, so do you think you can't decompose inquiry in this way? Even if you think that the Socratic ideal is the, you know, uh, the best way of doing inquiry, um, because you're just doing both of these things at once, you might think that it's at least possible to do the other thing um given that we're we're not all socrates yeah so that's a great question i think the answer is no you can't decompose you can't decompose it at all that is you can't do the one unless you're also doing the other one they're they're um so that like you're not really doing constructive inquiry if you're not also at every moment challenging what the other person is saying and you're not doing a real and genuine destruction unless you're sort of having in view what's going to come in the wake. Like, and those are not always jobs of the same person. <laughs> that is, in in the conversation, right? There are two people. Like in a Socratic conversation, there's sort of the constructive person and the destructive person. And Socrates is the destructive person. But I think he can't operate unless his interlocutor is continually coming up with some new way in which actually they do know about piety. Like, you know, even in the, like the Euthyphro, which is as destructive a dialogue as you get. Um, so, like Socrates has to, at some point, help Euthyphro. Like, okay, maybe you think this. And Euthyphro's like, yeah, yeah, let's go with that, right? Like there needs to be something. Um, Take more recent examples. Again, I find the mistake in your math proof or you did a lab experiment and I do a replication and my replication failed to replicate your experiment. You might say in those two cases, Am I like obligated to like show how you went wrong in your proof or to show you where your experiment failed to, to do what I think it should have done because mine doesn't replicate yours? Or can I just show you these things and have that my, my immediate contribution and just have us all wait to see what the world does with those afterwards? Yeah, I mean, um, like I guess I think. Um, I think that, you know, if I don't see 
where I went wrong in the proof, like, um, and, and I can show you where you went wrong, but I don't, you haven't shown you how you went wrong. Right. And, um, then like, I guess, you know, in terms of like a Socratic refutation, right. Is the person coming to see, um, coming to understand their own error and and I wouldn't have done that. And so in effect, um, your destruction is incomplete. Like you can do that as you can just show the error. It's just that there you, you haven't completed even the task of destruction. Maybe we never need to complete it. Maybe it's just enough that we know your proof is wrong. We'll never figure out how you went wrong. I mean, if like when you say we, right? Like if I'm to construct a new proof and, I, and I'm going to need to avoid making that exact same error, then I probably do need to know how I went wrong. But if you don't care about what I do, right? Um, and someone else is going to construct a new proof. I mean, you wouldn't even have to show me the error, right? No, but, but I needed to show you and everybody that your proof is wrong. But knowing that your proof is wrong means we don't believe your proof anymore and we go we don't use it as a premise to other arguments but knowing how your proof went wrong that would be you know knowing the process by which you made proof most people don't show the process by which they make proofs when they publish a proof they just show the proof so uh the process by which you went is a private process that we weren't getting get to see and you would have to know more about your private process in order to reason about where you went wrong in the proof and we don't really even have much data to work with to help you with that Mm. Yeah. Okay. So this is helpful because, like, I think it. It maybe I want to revise my answer to Rory's question earlier. It's like maybe what I think is that um, the claim that I made earlier is true for like a subset of um, human pursuits and inquiries, namely the ones that we're not capable of thinking about on our own. Um, that is, and that's you know all the conversations Socrates has, I think he has about those sorts of things. Maybe we don't want to make that claim about math. That is, maybe math is something you can think about it on your own. You can privately have your proof and work it out and someone can point it out to you or you can see the error yourself. Um, um, That is, you didn't need there to be other people in the first place. But if the thing is the sort of thing where people can only think about it together, then, um, then yeah, they haven't, um, shown you like the relevant thing until they've um gotten you to the point where you could start over so say it's something you can only do together with someone does that someone have to be me the one who showed you your mistake um so you have some other partner you usually discuss these say say you can't do math proofs without a partner and you in fact did this math proof with a partner but that partner isn't me i'm the one who found the mistake in your proof and i'm telling you about that Right. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm smiling because when I was in grad school, I was like teaching myself a bunch of advanced logic and I would like try to get my roommate who was a logician to help me with it. But it was so easy for him that he couldn't help me because he would just like make these jumps. It was incredibly frustrating because I'm like, here I am living with a logician, right? He should be able to clarify these things for me. But um, it was just like, he, he didn't know how to slow down his mind to my speed. Um, um, so, um, uh, I think, 
I mean, like, I guess the way you frame this question, which is like, well, aren't I allowed to just do this much and no more? Um, and uh, I sort of, I'm not sure how to answer that question. It's like, yeah, but I might be annoyed at you for that. It's <laughs> um, sort of the response that I am inclined to give. Like, yes, you're allowed to do that, but I'm allowed to get annoyed about it, I guess. So when you're liable to get annoyed by it, I guess, um, look, I think you can feel annoyed in a sustained way when you, you like, you genuinely think somebody has done something wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes it sound like you're not convinced about the benefits of this epistemic ecosystem consisting of edgelords and snowflakes. Um, because if you thought that like Robin was just, you know, doing his like edgelord thing and that was a valuable contribution and snowflakes would come along afterwards, um, you wouldn't be annoyed or it doesn't seem like you can like coherently like hold on to that annoyance over like an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you think that by holding on to the annoyance, what you're in fact like doing as a research project is constructing this um post-Hansonian vision of why signaling is actually our primary motive and that's great. Yeah, I kind of think it is that. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is, um, so like, first of all, I think like being annoyed is just the mode of being of a snowflake. So if you say we're allowed to have snowflakes, what you're saying is we're allowed to have annoyed people. Um, and um, and then I think like, it, you know, if what is the annoyance and expression of? Like, I think it really is just like, help. You're supposed to help me, right? Um, That is, here's a thing and you're not helping me enough and I need you to help me. And I'm just going to keep telling you that you need to help me like forever until you help me. Is that why you started the podcast? I mean, in order to answer yes to that, I'd have to sort of psychoanalyze a little bit, you know, like, like we started the podcast, we were talking on Zoom and then like, I, I think it was Robin was like, like, there should be like a product of this, you know, <laughs> so we could like record these. So we were already talking before we started the podcast, right? But at our very first conversation, I brought up Elephant in the Brain and this exact issue. So it's sort of like, if you ask, why are we talking? Then I think, yeah, this was like a big part of it. Um, hey, but uh, we're, we're about out of time. So I'll just end with uh, first... I think in some sense, the answer you want may not exist like the person asking you for a date who wants to know how they could have gotten you to say yes, or the person who did the audition and wants to know how could they have gotten the part. And I'm saying, well, there, there is an answer to understand here, but that's just not apparently in the space you want to look at. You, you, you want an answer over in a different place, and that may not be where the answer is. And, uh, you know, I also, I just, I mean, I think this edgelord accusation, I mean, I guess it would have to sort of be explained by someone's persistent focus on topics that in fact did bother people. And then that would be evidence that they were, you know, strong, substantially motivated by trying to bother people. But if if they just pursue a lot of different topics and some of them happen to bother people, but they aren't especially focused on those, I think the evidence for their bothering people motive is weaker. Okay, I'm gonna say one. I'm gonna say one last thing, and then Rory gets the last word. Um, uh, I want to say I feel like this was good, like therapy for me and Robin, because <laughs> I actually think that was very 
uh, just insightful that, um, that in some way, maybe this is like from my side, maybe not at all from Robin's side, but from my side, kind of the goal of the podcast is that we're supposed to try to produce something positive where I think something positive should be. And then Robin doesn't necessarily think there's anything that goes there, right? So that's also what we're squabbling over. But anyway, I wanted to make that observation. Okay, Robin, uh, Roy, last last words. Uh, okay, well, I'll respond to Robin's final thought on the edgelord accusation um so robin said something like look um the edge of accusation is is fair to the extent that you're persistently focusing on a very narrow class of controversial topics but to the extent that you know um you write about different things like aliens for example um then maybe you know uh you can't accuse of, of being an edge lord um and maybe i would just say uh, in response that there aren't that many topics that really annoy people um, because the world is very big and uh, most people don't care about most things. Um, so, I don't know, if you're telling people that they don't really care about being healthy and you're never allowed to disagree with anyone, then then maybe, you know, we can <laughs> make some kind of inference from that. <laughs> thank you for coming on our show, Corey. Yes, thank yeah, you, thank Roy. You. Thanks for the blog post. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye.